Thank you, Titus. That was beautiful. Um, only for me, he says. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we continue with our sermon? Jesus, I pray that my words will be your words, that um, we would hear your spirit speaking clearly to our hearts this morning, and that we would be, uh, as we behold you and your word, we would be uh, formed and shaped into your image uh, for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Uh, today we are continuing with Advent. This week is focused on peace. Peace is an idea that, depending where we're at, it might feel a little far away from us today. It might feel a little abstract. At least when we look at our world right now, like globally, when we look at the uh, war and the devastation that are happening in Gaza and in Israel, war in Ukraine, civil war in Ethiopia and Myanmar and Mali and, and, and Somalia and Syria and Yemen and terrorist insurgencies all over the country, uh, all over countries around the world, uplifting sermon this morning to start off, right? Uh, when we think about the continued gun violence and political and social strife in our own country, to gather and sing and speak of peace can feel a little hollow. But it's worth remembering in this season of Advent that in Jesus' time, things were much the same. Part of Advent is joining in the same type of anticipation for the Messiah that the people experienced in Jesus' time. Jesus was born into a time when his people were ruled by the Roman Empire. And this was in an era in the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the Roman peace. This was like a 200-year period from about 27 B.C. through uh, 180 A.D. It started with the rule of this guy, Caesar Augustus. And this was a time where the Roman Empire experienced peace. That is, there was little or no civil war among the Romans. After this age of violent successions, including the murder of Julius Caesar, uh, the empire was finally consolidated under uh, one emperor, J Julius Caesar's nephew Octavian, who was renamed Caesar Augustus. And so for this 200 years of the Pax Romana, the rule of the Roman emperor was mostly unchallenged. Roman citizens enjoyed peace. They built roads and aqueducts. Aqueducts. Roman culture and society flourished. This was a golden age. Many Romans likely imagined that it would never end, that their empire was the high point and the end point of human history, that the sun would never set on the Roman Empire. But, and maybe this is a lesson for all of us, nothing lasts forever, and neither did the Pax Romana. And it's kind of fair to question and step back here and say, really, was it Pax in the first place? What about the subjugated Jewish people? What about all the other peoples that were oppressed and ruled by the Romans during the Pax Romana? Those in Jesus' day were subjugated, were oppressed, were looking ahead to a Messiah, looking ahead to an end to this Roman domination, to a true and everlasting kingdom of peace. One of those people was Zechariah, who we read about starting at the beginning of the book of Luke. And we're going to look at that today in chapter 1. We're going to read the words that he shares in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 68. Zechariah was a priest from a line of priests. He and his wife, Elizabeth, were old. They were childless. They were waiting for the Messiah. They had long since stopped waiting for a child to come to them. 
And so one day an angel comes to tell Zechariah that he will have a son, that his son is to be named John, that he would go before the Lord and prepare the people for the coming Messiah. Zechariah's initial response to this is to doubt the angel's message. And so he is struck mute for the remainder of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And when the boy is born and it's finally declared that his name is John, then finally Zechariah's lips are loose and he finally speaks again. And we read this song of prophecy from him. And this is starting here at verse 67. It says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets, holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Then you can imagine Zechariah holding up his newborn son here and saying, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen? Beautiful words from Zechariah. And we'll zero in in a moment on that last bit, the the promise that the coming Messiah, this rising sun that will come from heaven to shine on those living in darkness, that that Messiah would guide our feet into the path of peace. But first I want to bring in another Zechariah. We're going to call him Zechariah the first, Zechariah number one. Uh, He was a prophet in the Old Testament, roughly 500 years before Zechariah 2. He was prophesying during the time when the Jewish people were coming out of exile in Babylon. When they were coming back to their land, they were under the rule of the Persian Empire. The, the Jewish people had a, a pretty rough go of it for a long, long, long time at this point. Uh, towards the late 700s, there was the Assyrian Empire that took away much of their kingdom. Towards the early 500s, then it was the Babylonians. Then, then uh, decades after that, the Persians. After the Persians, it was the Greeks. Then it was the Romans. We all got that, all five. It will be on the quiz. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, right? Uh, This is happening during Persia when they had a moderately good emperor that at least sent many of the Jews back to their home. And so they are returning. Zechariah the first is prophesying to them as they come back and they begin to pick up the pieces of their broken lives as they begin to literally sort through the rubble of their home begin to try and rebuild the temple, put their lives, their nation, their hope back together again. And these are the words of Zechariah, the first to these people. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here's your Sunday school answer. Who is that referring to ultimately? Jesus. Yes, we did. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. Ephraim's a Jewish region. Uh, and, and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will take away the battle bow. Uh, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So in other words, everywhere. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, this is 500 years before Jesus, God speaking of the blood of his covenant, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pits. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Zechariah the first imagined, uh, envisioned, I should say, a future time when this mysterious king would come, not, not warring and conquering in the manner of Persia or Greece or Rome, but riding on a donkey, taking away implements of war from his people, proclaiming peace to the nations. Zechariah the second, 500-ish years later, envisions much the same, envisions a coming time soon to come when God would act in remembrance of his covenant. His promises, when he would rescue the people, when he would shine light in their darkness, when he would guide them in the path of peace. Amen? The name Zechariah means God remembers. Hebrew names always mean something. Zechariah means God remembers. You're going to learn three Hebrew words today. This is the first one. Zakar. Everybody say Zakar. Zakar means remember. Zechariah is based on the root word Zakar. Uh, in seminary, you have to come up with complicated things to remember Hebrew words because they are nothing at all like the English words. Nothing at all. It's like trying to translate Martian. And so for me, I would remember Zakar by saying, uh, I can't remember where I parked Zakar. Right? So, and I still remember that. It was nine years ago. So there you go. You will never forget that. Use it as parties, at parties. Trust me when I say people will think you are very cool uh, and worth being friends with. Um, <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Um, Zakar, remember. Zechariah, God remembers. In the midst of the devastation of Judea after the invasion of Babylon or the oppression of the Judeans under the so-called Pax Romana, these two Zechariahs proclaim that God remembers, that in, the def in defiance of the bloody evidence all around them, God will return to his people. God will remember his covenant. God will establish peace. Amen? In the midst of the Pax Romana, Zechariah holds up his infant son and has a vision of a coming Pax Messiah. A kingdom come marked by peace. In Advent, we join the Zechariahs in anticipation of that Pax Messiah. The final peace of Jesus, our King. Let's pause here. What even is peace? What are we talking about when we say that? What does it look like? And what does it mean to walk in the paths of peace? Uh, typically, when we hear the word peace, we think of the opposite of war, right? War and peace. Um, or, or the absence of conflict. This is true, and a lot of times, you know, when we read peace in Scripture, that is part of what it means. But that is not all of what it means. That's a negative definition that tells us what peace is not, right? Peace is not war. Peace is the absence of violence. But the biblical concept of peace pushes far past that negative definition. 
It says, okay, in the absence of war, what do we see positively taking war's place? That brings us to our second Hebrew word of the day, uh, the concept of shalom. Have you heard of shalom before? You've heard this word, I'm, I imagine, if you've heard a Hebrew word. Um, you're welcome. We're up to two. It's going to be three. It's going to be great. Um, shalom is one of the most important and most complex um, concepts that we read about in the Old Testament. Shalom is often, though not always, translated as peace, but it means something closer to complete and whole and perfect. It is a, a robust uh, idea. Um, one thing to know about, as we're translating Hebrew to English, um, English, as we speak it today, has about 170,000 different words that are in use right now. And we have another 50,000 that we've left behind at this point. Um, ancient Hebrew, at the most generous possible estimates, had something like 14,000 words. And a lot of those are, if we, the most generous estimate is including, like, Moses and Noah and David as unique words. So, more realistically, it's probably about 10,000. So, English has, like, 17 times as many words as ancient Hebrew did. So, as we're trying to make sense of ancient Hebrew, uh, it means that their words carried often a lot of extra weight and resonance. Sometimes their words were doing double and triple duty. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is the Hebrew word kakar. Say kakar. This one's not actually very important, but I think it's kind of fun. Um, so kakar uh, could mean uh, loaf of bread, right? You got that? Loaf of bread. Okay. Kakar can also mean like a coin, okay? Or like a talent, a weight of measure, but let's, let's call it a coin for now. You got that? Loaf of bread, coin. Kakar could also mean... If you saw a geographical formation like a, a plain or a lake or something that it was round, ovular, uh, that would also be kakar. Got it? Loaf of bread, coin, round lake. People think maybe it was because um, loaves of bread and coins were also round, and so all these things together had the connotation of roundness. Over the centuries, kakar also came to refer to things that were square. <laughs> So, just to review for our quiz later, kakar, uh, loaf of bread, coin, the concept of roundness, and the concept of squareness. All, all one word. Got it? Great. That's what we're dealing with here when we talk about Hebrew, and that's what we're dealing with a little bit when we talk about this Hebrew word shalom. Yes, it means peace, like kakar means loaf of bread, but it means so much more than that. Shalom means completeness and wholeness and perfection. In the book of Joshua, it says that Joshua built an altar out of Eben Shelemot. Eben is stone. I guess there's a fourth word for you today. Eben is stone, like Ebenezer. Shelemot is from the root Shalom. So this altar was made of Eben Shelemot, literally Shalom stone. This means like um, uncut stones. It gives us the image of this altar. The stones fit perfectly together. There's no seams. There's no cracks. There's no uh, defects, right? In the book of Job, Job's friend Eliphaz, Eliphaz tells Job that God will make his tent shalom. And the sign for this will be, will be that he will survey all his flocks and he will find no sheep missing. Shalom for Job, in this instance, means no missing sheep. We might say shalom for Jesus, the good shepherd, means no missing sheep. 
Shalom puts us in mind of the perfection and the wholeness of God's kingdom that we will one day experience. So when the two Zechariahs look ahead and they envision with hope and expectancy this Pax Messiah, it wasn't merely that war would come to an end. It was that. But it was also that the righteous reign of God would be established, that justice would be done in the land, that the wounds of sin which marked the world would be healed, that the relationships between peoples and between people and God would become shalom. This is what the Zechariahs envisioned. This is what Mary envisioned. When she said that God will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, bring down rulers from their thrones, but lift up the humble, feed the hungry, but send the rich away empty. When the peace of God comes, it's not this passive, quiet thing. It is God establishing justice, filling in valleys and laying low mountains, raising up the oppressed, pulling down the oppressor. That is shalom. That is what the angels declare when they say, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Our king is coming. And when we think about this shalom, this Pax Messiah, this kingdom coming and still to come, the next question for us, the last question then is, okay, how do I be a part of that? How do I walk in the path of peace? I think it comes down, as much as anything, it comes down to deciding now which kingdom you belong to and living in light of it now. It it takes some work. It takes some conscious uh, imagining ourselves living under this future Pax Messiah in life as it will be. It takes conscious work. When we don't do that conscious work, we subconsciously just default to the Pax Romana that is all around us. It's worth asking ourselves this morning, are we doing that work? Is Jesus really our Lord or is Caesar? Walking in the path of peace means living now like we will then. Rooting ourselves in that future kingdom and letting that shape our present. Make sense? That could mean a lot of things. Here are a few. Uh, related to peace this morning because we are citizens of that Pax Messiah and not the Pax Romana around us. Because of that, we as Christians aim to practice nonviolence. From Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and elsewhere, we know that the Pax Messiah in that coming kingdom, people will offer, you know, people will offer their enemies the other cheek. We take Jesus at his word on that. We take Jesus at his word that we ought to love our enemies even unto death. We see our king going to the cross without a word raised in his own defense, and we aim to do likewise. Amen? For the first several centuries of the faith, there there was a radical commitment to nonviolence. And this was a unanimous and, and not really controversial aspect of the faith. This meant in your personal interactions and in regards to the prospect of fighting in war, Christians were uniquely called to follow Jesus' command and example to take him seriously to not fight, not as a soldier, not in the town square. Because we are citizens of the kingdom and not Rome, we pledge allegiance to Jesus alone and not any flag. So when, when global conflicts arise... We don't find ourselves picking sides according to the typical tribal lines. 
It's fine and good to want America's well-being. We live here. But, but our first thought is not what's good for America or for any other nation. Our first thought is that we belong to a different people. We belong to the Pax Messiah first and foremost, where all fighting, all oppression has ceased. That's what we sing. That's what we sang this morning. That's the vision that we ought to be captured by. So we long for peace. We work for peace. We mourn any bloodshed. We mourn any life lost. We stand up and we insist that violence is never necessary. There is never an instance where the death of innocence is justified. Because where we belong, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Where we belong, violence is unthinkable. Where we belong... In the kingdom of God, enemies are loved, and we see no room ever for killing another person, even in self-defense. We see no room for, well, these things happen. It was necessary. It was the lesser of two evils. No. No. In seminary, uh, I had a class, and I had a peer who protested <laughs> in class against uh, the idea of pacifism. Um, and what he said was, pastorism is not popular in seminary. It's probably, it might not be popular here today. I don't know. Um, what he said is, well, what would have happened if we hadn't fought back against Hitler? Think of how much worse things would have been. Here was my professor's response. He said, yeah, no, that's interesting. He said, what if all of the German Christians had refused to fight for Hitler in the first place because of their devotion to Jesus. To be a German citizen meant to belong to the Lutheran church. What if the German Christians had been faithful to Jesus and refused to fight? What would have happened then? When we belong to the kingdom of God, we start to think differently about these things and to push past the options available to us from our culture. So if we believe and belong to the coming Pax Messiah, if we believe then that all human life is inherently valuable, made in God's image, then how could we not do everything we possibly can to be, in the words of Ronald Sider, comprehensively pro-life? Not only desiring to see abortions lessen, we ought to desire that, but we also ought to desire to lay down our lives to support the vulnerable, scared women contemplating it. How could we not do everything in our power to protect innocent people, innocent children from mass shootings? How could we throw up our hands and surrender there and think it's just the cost of doing business? How could we not seek to see the death penalty eradicated? Because, you know, in the Pax Romana, people take retribution with their own hands. Feel they can condemn another person finally like that. But in the Pax Messiah, we believe no one, no one is ever beyond redemption. As citizens of the Pax Messiah, how could we not lay down our lives to relieve refugees crowding borders and being turned away? And because we are citizens of the Pax Messiah, not the Pax Romana, lastly, we also recognize that violence starts in our hearts. We take those words of Jesus seriously as well in Matthew 5. That in the words of Jesus, to cultivate anger or hatred against a brother or sister is tantamount to committing murder. 
Because Jesus understands that harboring anger or hatred exists on the same continuum with physical violence. They're not separate things. Left unchecked, anger and hatred will grow into physical violence. So it's nice to take a stand against war. It's nice to put up whatever appropriate flag on our Facebook profile picture. That's fine. But if I harbor resentments and anger toward another, I am not walking in the path of peace. Paul tells us in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus says, if you're coming to bring your offering in worship and remember that has someone has something against you, drop the offering and go be reconciled. I don't want it yet, Jesus says. Go and handle your business. Go and be reconciled. As people trying to walk in the paths of peace, citizens of the kingdom, we cannot tolerate in ourselves bitter, bitterness, resentment, anger, hatred. We cannot tolerate it in ourselves. I've worked through this a lot myself. I, historically, I've not typically been an angry person. That's not something that typically has come naturally to me. Uh, in the last year and a half, two years, I have dealt with some anger. It took me like a year and a half, and my wife to help me realize that's what I was even feeling. Um, towards some specific people. And um, I wasn't used to feeling this way. I didn't really know what to do with it. But eventually, after months and months, I took the step of talking it out, of trying to obey Romans 12, to do my part to be at peace with this person. It was so incredibly hard. And I'm as of now, it doesn't seem like it worked or did anything. Um, but I belong to a kingdom to come. And when I look ahead to that kingdom, I believe and know that one day me and that person will be reconciled. I don't necessarily want that right now. <laughs> But I look ahead to that moment and I know and I believe me and that person will be reconciled one day. We will embrace as brothers in Christ that we will be shalomed, right? I believe that. And if I believe that, how could I possibly continue now in anger and hatred towards that person? That's me. There are a thousand different ways that we could apply this. I'm just trying to get to the idea that if the Pax Messiah is where we belong, it's going to lead us to some radical, some unexpected places, to radical action and to radical, determined reconciliation with coworkers, with family members, with enemies, with fellow church members. Because we are citizens of the kingdom of God and not Rome, we look ahead to that vision, we are captured by it, and we ought to be ready to lay down our lives to see it come on earth as in heaven. Amen? And maybe we don't see that in our lifetime. Maybe walking in the paths of peace will seem foolish, pointless. It'll seem like a drop in the ocean. Maybe we'll try our best and it won't work. But when we are faithful to this vision of the Pax Messiah, this beautiful shalom, I promise you, you will become just a little signpost of that kingdom to come. It's a little foretaste of God's promises. That's what we do in Advent. We, we remember, and we look ahead, and in living out 
this story, we are led into the paths of peace. Amen. I invite the choir and the band back up, um, as well as any pastors in the room. As we close out our service, um, pastors will be up here at the front if anyone is uh, seeking prayer this morning for anything at all. Um, we'll sing one more song together and then we'll conclude our service.